0: There's a stereotype that sex with a narcissist is fantastic, and certainly in love bombing, sex was introduced way too early as a way to enhance the connection. But in today's episode, Tara and I burst the bubble of the myth of great sex with narcissists. I want to give a warning, though. This is a very graphic discussion that may be triggering for some and definitely not a topic for unsupervised young ears. Please take this into consideration as you listen. Today's self-help tip, Tara is going to discuss the importance of using red light, green light as a way to promote sexual safety and emotional safety in our relationships. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse, where we talk about strategies, tips, and tricks on navigating and recovering from narcissistic abuse. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie McEvoy, a mental health clinician with over 20 years experience and author of Love You More, a graphic inside look at
1: my experience of a toxic relationship. And I'm your other co-host, Tara Blair Ball, a certified relationship coach and B-Survivor and author of Reclaim and Recover, Heal from Toxic Relationships with the 7-Step Guided Journal. If I get one more review that claims the reason I stayed in the
0: relationship was because of all the fantastic sex that I was having, I think I'll scream. So... Is that a common myth that you hear that sex with a narcissist because of the love bombing is fantastic? Let's break this down today. I know this is a topic that I have not really, I have not talked about and I don't know many people who do. So I thought maybe we might be brave and leap in here.
1: It's definitely a topic I've heard about. I've had multiple clients, multiple friends who are like, the sex was so good in the beginning and now it's not so great and they want to get back to there or they want to stay or take their ex back because the sex was so good at some point. And usually that some point was always in the very beginning when that person was also so kind and respectful and loving. All of the qualities or traits that sort of dropped off when the relationship turned healthy, pretty abusive. Yeah. Did you see a change in your relationship? That was not a thing in my unhealthy relationship. It is a thing that I would see in some dating relationships. I dated someone shortly after my divorce who I really saw it more as a really intense push to have sex really early before I was comfortable. And it was very intense, very pointed, like. We were having dinner at his house and he was like, my bed's right there over and over again, this like pushy pressuring, which at the time I really didn't see it as a red flag, even though I'm very aware of it now. But I just wasn't I was in a pretty vulnerable place and just thought it was kind of cute, just sickening. But that push to sexual intimacy too early to the fact that it was it was very pushy, coercive, that kind of thing was a big red flag and in that relationship that sex piece was sort of held over my head like we have such good sex you said we had such good sex why would you want to leave that kind of thing
0: yeah this is stuff that I never shared out loud probably anywhere the sex was never good the sex was always bad and it was coercive as well and it happened way too fast and the first time was good because it kind of featured his best ability to show up sexually if he had to like fully show up, he wouldn't have been able to. And I didn't know that, but it was coercive. And it certainly was, um, I was in a lot of conflict with myself. And now I'm looking back at it, it, there wasn't anything kind or a little little good about it. It was just that he was pushing it, you know, and it, it felt dangerous to me. And when it happened on that first date, it felt really dangerous because it wasn't something that I'd wanted. In fact, I I didn't want to be in his hotel room. I wanted to be waiting down in the lobby. He even pushed that to, for me to come wait for him to finish packing in his hotel room. And then he pushed sex onto me and you know I went along with it. Do I think that narcissistic or other pathological personalities could be good at sex? Absolutely. Anybody can get good at sex if you learn to pay attention to another person's response and their how they're reacting. But I think this is I would love to know what using Tara. I think sex is used as a weapon, certainly as a tool, in these toxic relationships. And I think that it's such a vulnerable place for so many of us that we find it difficult to share with the world what happens in the inside of these relationships, how messed up this area in our relationship is. The good news was I had 31 years of of a good marriage, decent marriage, and sex was good. It was normal. It was, it was a give and take. It was a safe space for the two of us to be. And we were vulnerable in that space. And I had that history. And I think that helped me to know that something was really wrong in the second
1: relationship because the sex was so odd. It was really odd. The sex in my first marriage, like you, was never good. It, it was never good. It never felt so silly. It never felt satisfying. It was really shame-based. That was something that I remember from the very beginning. In that relationship, waited a while to have sex. And I had already developed feelings. I felt by that point that it didn't matter to me as much that the sex wasn't a satisfying place. I thought that was something that we could both work to improve in the relationship. But the sex remained very shame-based. And I definitely experienced it as a tool of control. Like, if I did something wrong, sex would be withheld in the relationship. Sex was not very connective. I heard a lot of comments that were very judgmental about my body. There was judgment if I was too wet. Things like that that made it this very fraught experience. I always thought it would change, though. Like, we'll come together. This will be a good experience for us as a couple. We can learn. We can grow. We can experiment. But it was never allowed to be that way. It really was just used as a, I felt like a tool of control in that relationship, especially at the end. When you say shame-based, what do you mean? Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Like you felt ashamed or you felt, like, what do you mean? There was definitely a lot of discomfort there. It was not allowed for us to talk about or discuss about sex in general. I was met with silence or stonewalling if I tried to bring issues about our sex life or things I wanted to try or experience. If there were issues in the bedroom, which there were often, like erectile dysfunction, issues like that, it was not to be anything that we were allowed to talk about or discuss. It was just this, I don't know how else to describe it, it's very just she-based. That Mm -hmm. they're just, it wasn't okay. It just wasn't okay. And yet we couldn't admit or talk about why it wasn't okay or come to solutions. It was just, we're supposed to pretend that there weren't problems and definitely not call them problems. Yeah.
0: Now that you say that, yeah, that's exactly what was happening in ours too. My ex has significant erectile dysfunction. It's significant. I mean, it's debilitating level. And we couldn't talk about it either. It it was a chronic problem, occurred every single time. And we had to be creative, but we how do you get creative when you can't talk about something? When it's so embarrassing that nobody can bring it up? It is definitely not only the white elephant, but it's the white elephant dancing on the bed. I mean, it was just, it was, it was so, such an issue. But here's the other issue was, is that I do believe he had a sexual addiction. Do I think that every person who says that has it? No, but I do believe that he was using sex as a way to handle emotions. He was excessively sexually preoccupied excessively sexually acting out, including all forms of acting out every possible way, which meant there was no energy or interest in the relationship with me because he was sexually acting out everywhere. I mean, let's get really practical for a second. How many times can you come in a day? Only so many times you had the energy to show up that way. You're not going to do it, you know, 20, 30, 50 times. So if it's already occurred many times in that day and then I'm interested, he's no longer interested. And the other thing was, is that he really wasn't interested in me anyway. I wasn't his type. He never was sexually interested in me. I missed that. I missed that. In the, he told me in the first date that he was surprised he found me arousing at all. And I didn't hear it. And then it become part of our relationship that he wasn't all that sexually interested in me. The sad part of it for me was this, that my first husband and I, Brad and I, connected around sex. Brad had a lot of trouble with his emotions and so he kind of funneled his softer emotions into being sexually intimate with me. We had a very active life that way and it was a way that i experienced intimacy with him was sexually. When he was dying, I felt like I was being doomed to a life of loneliness. Like a lack of connection, because I really viewed sex as a critical part of my life that made me happy, so when I got into the second marriage and then discovered all these problems and was you know shame and 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 acting out and betrayal and devastate it was devastating to me I mean it gutted me, all the betrayals gutted me i I found myself feeling profoundly lonely and 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 terribly embarrassed, and then also like it, it was so bad that at one point I was okay with not having sex with this person just because it was so awful it was better not to try than to try anything at all which he wasn't interested in anyway but uh it was I, I think that's what's painful to me is that he he is a very good-looking man a very good-looking man and and I, it was hard for me to explain to people that I'm I'm a person who's really kind of turned on by a person's personality not by looks but there is something about him when I look at him almost like his beauty affected me not sexually but affected me and and to have if I could have had that come together to have the beauty of his his physicality to have this amazing intimacy sexually if I could experience that together I don't, I don't know what that would have been like. It, it never was there, but I had long. I'm somehow I kind of longed for that connectedness with somebody, and because my first husband, I, I didn't feel as attracted to him, although we had all this incredible intimacy. So I really wanted this whole picture, and then what I got was, yeah, he's super attractive, but there's nothing intimate, and that that is that it's almost in a way a worse thing than to be intimate with somebody you may not have a perfect attraction to. I mean, I. I know people like are like, really? You can actually be intimate with somebody you're not attracted to? Yeah, absolutely. You can. Because intimacy is really more than just, hey, getting off on someone's looks. Anyway, it was complicated. For me, this relationship was really complicated. And it was something I felt really, I felt like I couldn't share with anybody. I couldn't talk about it. So when I heard this, I was reading, where did I come across this? Somebody was talking about to sexual assault inside a relationship, inside of marriages, like, I resonated with that powerfully. And I thought, wow, you and I need to talk about this because nobody's talking about this.
1: Yeah, it is something that I, I have known people in my life who have experienced it. It is not something that I've personally experienced it in that specific way. But I I have met really too many people that have experienced and try to discount it or minimize it, see it as, well, I offered consent at this other time. So it's a real fine line to walk. It is. It is. There's a moment that
0: happened in where, um, so sex was weaponized, meaning that he knew I wanted it more often than he was interested in. So then there was all sorts of this game playing and gaslighting that was happening. And there was this one time where he actually assaulted me. It was sort of like, well, you asked for it, so you got it. This is how you got it. And he, he hurt me. I mean, he really hurt me doing it. And I remember that I had therapy the next day and telling her about that and just feeling mortified to have your husband assault you. Um, it's like, and, and yet, and, and feeling like, well, can that even happen because they're your husband? I mean, he would say things like, well, because we came from a Christian framework, well, it doesn't the your spouse's body belong to you. Well, yeah, but technically, no. I mean, we're two separate people. There needs to be real, actual consent. And what you did was angry. You wanted to get me back to punish me. That's why you did what you did. There was nothing lovely in that. There was nothing loving about what happened. It was revenge, is what it was. But there's, yeah, I, it's it's a tough thing because whenever I have shared something that's occurred around intimacy like this, physical intimacy around sex, we tend to come back to the person who experienced it and said, why didn't you do more? Like when that was happening, why didn't you get out? Why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you push them? Why did not you done something? Why did you, I mean, it's hard to explain what's happening in those moments. There's a level of shock and surrealness. You can't actually fathom this is going on. So it's it's, hard for me because because we we I think as a society doesn't like to see vulnerability so then we say to victims you should reduce your vulnerability or you should have done something different so you weren't so weak or
1: so passive and I think that totally just ignores the fact that not everybody responds by fighting some of us run away like we disassociate some of us totally freeze that I I was not sexually assaulted with my marriage but I was sexually assaulted in other relationships and in those cases, I just froze. I couldn't even say no or anything because I just froze like my body was stone. And yet the experience still happened, regardless of the fact that I wasn't physically acting, interested, acting anything at all. And I think that totally ignores that aspect. Or even just that the person might fawn know, that they might try to smooth it over make it better and how incredibly vulnerable it is to be attacked in that way and how it's such your intimacy violation of your own personal body someone's like they're likely bigger than you it's there's so much at stake and potentially saying no or fighting back that you may not feel safe or able to do it for that reason yeah especially I I was sitting here thinking about this. If you're in a relationship with somebody that you
0: hope you can recover, you hope that you can somehow heal and come back from, and then this happens, how do you do that? Well, the way I did it was you just don't talk about it, and you push it under the rug, and and you move on, and you go on the next day and act like I didn't, and you just move on. Because if it becomes this moment, then it's like unraveling, like literally having a a sweater that has a, a loose knot in it. And then if you start to pull at it, that's my fear. If you start to pull at it, you're going to unravel the whole sweater. You're going to ruin the whole mess. So it's just better to sort of like try to put a knot in it, walk away and just pretend, okay, it's done. That's past. Let's never have that happen again. I'll learn not to push. I'll learn not to ask. I learned to be a little bit more compliant. And then maybe we can, maybe we can heal. Maybe down the road, this person become healthy enough. We can have this conversation, but we're certainly not here. We're not there now. So let's just not talk about it. That's the way I approached it. What I didn't realize was that this sweater was already unraveling. Knots were already coming undone everywhere. I just didn't see that. I kept thinking we could we could save this and that my, my silence was part of the effort to save it. It wasn't savable. I didn't see that it was really hard. It was really, it, that it all of that was really hard for me. Yeah.
1: I think it too comes back to the cognitive dissonance. You know, some of the ways we might try to resolve a cognitive dissonance would be to change our own beliefs. And that might mean starting to gaslight ourselves that it wasn't actually a lack of consent or it wasn't actually, etc. cetera, you know, trying to excuse it, minimize it, because then that would help decrease the, the contradictory beliefs of this is a person who loves me, but this is also a person who sexually assaulted me. Yeah. If we don't view it as sexual assault. Then we can sort of resolve that in our own heads. And I think in a lot of cases like that, we, we really can't resolve that because those are two different realities. No matter how much we try, we can't. Yeah. You are making another really good point. Here's another
0: thing that I, I don't think I've actually said out loud. But I'm going to go ahead and say it here: is that um, that that he had a sadistic nature, and that part of his sadism was showing up sexually. So that sex hurt. He made sure sex hurt every time. He made sure sex hurt. And I think that a lot of us don't want to say, you know what? I think my partner's doing this on purpose. This is not a little accident. If it happens every single time, and if you even said, you know, when that happens, that hurts, and then it continues to happen, there's something else going on here, and. You're right. I was gaslighting myself in the sense that I didn't acknowledge that. That was what was exciting him, was the fact that it was causing pain for me, that that this was deliberate. And I I really, I guess, I would hope anybody listening today is that it's important to step out and take a look, step out in the sense of, like, get outside of the picture and look in so that you can ask yourself these critical questions, because you may be... You may be being injured in ways that you haven't fully admitted that you're being injured. I certainly was being injured in that relationship that I couldn't look at head on because I was too ashamed. Because I was involved, I somehow thought that I was responsible. But I wasn't making this person being hurtful. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility was to see that and to protect myself better. But if we can't see it, we can't take steps to protect ourselves better. And yeah, it probably would have forced me into this position of, yeah. okay, now what I'm going to do, you're Carrie, you're owning the fact that this person's on purpose hurting you. That's not good. So wh- where is that going to take you? Yeah, probably early on, I wasn't ready to have that conversation, but I
1: think it's an important conversation to be having. I agree. And I also, I wanted to point out that mm-hmm. I was thinking about what you said earlier with your not finding you attractive, that you knew that, as well as abusing sex, pornography, that kind of thing that was actually something I discovered in my first marriage is that he had been abusing pornography. I, I too knew that he didn't necessarily find me attractive, and I knew that from the comments he would make about other women's bodies that he seemed to highlight features of other women's bodies that I didn't have and I came into that relationship feeling like an ugly duckling i had I had never been all that cute, and then I had sort of discovered cuteness, I guess, when I was around twenty three. And I I really hadn't adjusted to what that meant for me, feeling cute and that kind of thing. He was perceived by many people as seeming very attractive. Like I would compare him to like a Kennedy, a good old Irish Catholic boy. A lot of people have that perception of him, like this this politician good looks. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I I constantly found myself telling myself like, oh, how amazing is it that someone like him finds me attractive, chooses to be with me. And that immediately put us odds in terms of who had more power in the relationship. And yeah, it really impacted what I allowed to have happen in that relationship because I felt like I was with someone uh, that I didn't deserve, that was better or more superior to me based on just looks along, honestly.
0: Well, you're hitting me right between the eyes on that one because I did the same thing. I had us on this rating scale and somehow I thought myself was coming in about as a six and he was coming in at about a nine or a ten and somehow I thought I should be grateful for his attention. I... Still have to work super hard with that mindset. That's a mindset that's been ingrained in me since very young, very very young about value. You know the, that we earn our value. Or it's because of these uh, unique skills or uh, abilities. So uh, I lean into my intelligence is as a great value that I bring into whatever relationship I'm in. But I fail to see that maybe that as somebody who's always struggled with my weight, that that that's a piece that I feel super insecure about. But here's the thing, and I think this is what we're both saying. Toxic people have an uncanny ability to know where our vulnerabilities are. They will capitalize on that because of their own shame, and they will sit on top of you in those areas to make sure that you know that you're one down and And mine though never name called, believe it or not, never, never name called and he didn't actually even comment on my body much at all, but he found ways subtle ways to to hurt me. And to let me know that I wasn't all that, whether it was just his disinterest or or bragging that he never had been one to pick Barbie dolls, meaning that I wasn't a Barbie doll, or he would find ways to sort of you know to let me know that I was less than that 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 I was less than so I think what what we're both saying is that that bringing this out to light and and knowing that the safety should make you feel loved. And worthy and enough. And then, if that's not happening in your relationship, then there are some issues that need to be addressed. And that 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 that's not a bad thing. That's not thing to be embarrassed about. It's just something to get help around.
1: I often see when I work with couples that I think we often become more aware of issues in our relationship as it pertains to what's happening in the bedroom than out of it, and have a lot of similarities. Can you communicate? Can you resolve differences? And bedroom stuff is incredibly vulnerable and intimate for a lot of us. And we don't necessarily love talking about it with ourselves or our partners. But if we're having bedroom issues, then we're having other issues that we just may not be aware of quite yet. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Dr.
0: David Snarf wrote the book The Passionate Marriage, and he uses sex and and intimacy as a way to examine what's happening psychologically, interpersonally between couples. That it's, it's a perfect metaphor. It's a perfect breeding ground for whatever is going on there. You're also having problems in the same way, but it's in a different way in your relationship. If you're not showing up and being mutually, blessing each other, pleasuring each other, knowing how to benefit each other there, you're not doing it elsewhere either. You're right. It's a perfect mirror for what's happening in the relationship. I agree. That was good for
1: us to consider.
0: Yeah, it is. This has been, was super uncomfortable for me to talk about. I feel really like, oh man. But I think it's a critical because sex is something that narcissistic people introduce super early as a way to bond, but then it also just becomes fraught with all their difficulties because they have lots of difficulties. That means we're going to have a lot of difficulties in this arena. And I just think it's something we should be more open about. We shouldn't be so much fear or, or shame or hesitation.
1: In today's self-help tip, we're going to talk about a way that you can use traffic signals to help you in assessing how to go forward with sex or any levels of physical intimacy. As a survivor of sexual assault, when I was working with a therapist, my therapist suggested that I use red light, green light in assessing if I wanted to move forward with doing something or to stop. So, for example, my partner wanted to ask me if we wanted to kiss. I would have to think in my head of a stoplight. And would I put a red light on that, as an absolutely not do? Would I want to put a yellow light, as in caution, maybe discuss more? Or green light, as in I'm ready to go? And that was a way for me to assess physically, as well as to check in mentally with where am I at in this process? Does it feel too soon? Should I maybe have a conversation with this person more? Do I need to take a break, come back to it in the future? It really helped me get more present, check in more with my body, before committing to something that I may not be okay with. Tara and I know that sex is an uncomfortable topic for many of us. But after
0: listening to today's episode, did you find it particularly relevant as you consider your experience with a potentially narcissistic, unhealthy, toxic, or abusive relationship? what do you think about approaching sex more carefully by applying the tip of red light green light you can let us know by emailing us at hello at breaking free with make sure to follow subscribe and write a review and maybe you know someone who might benefit from this episode please share it with them and are you following us on social media you can find tara at Coach and me at kerry mcavoy phd And we'll see you back here next Monday where we'll be talking about ADHD and autism's vulnerability in narcissistically abusive relationships.